The Bakari Sellers podcast tackles the most pressing current events through conversations and interviews with high-profile guests. Building upon his experience in South Carolina government and politics and his experience as a lawyer, Sellers will talk to his guests about all topics from the world of politics. Check out the Bakari Sellers podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. David? This week's Joe Biden conspiracy theory rests on the idea of whether or not he was actually driving a Ford F-150 the other day or whether a Secret Service agent in the passenger seat was driving for him. (laughs) What I want to know is, was Joe Biden really like a rock? (laughs) I think I'm mixing my truck metaphors there, but just go with it. This has been fantastic for Ford, by the way. They should they 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 should have insisted that he use a you know automated driver or something just to get this kind of attention. And what is it about Joe Biden that I mean I know that there's some there was some like weird some really dark conspiracy theories when he was campaigning and stuff. But what is it about him that just lends that, that people are just so eager to find the conspiracy? Is it that he's so normal and likable that people are like there must be there must be a, a murder cult in his history or something. Yes. I think the more inert you are as a politician, the more this stuff builds up around you because there's nothing to say about the way he's being president. Really? It's like, I know he wasn't driving the car. He wasn't driving the F one fifty. It's sort of like what they say about comedy, right? It's just like the, the boring, you know, the, the, the great, that Trump or even Obama or Trump, Trump was great for comedy. Obama was bad for comedy. Cause there just was, it, he was just too steady or whatever. Um, maybe that's it too. Maybe Biden's just bad for comedy and he's, he's bad for, or he's good for conspiracy theories. Were you amused that this was about the Ford F-150, <laughs> which is kind of the all purpose car of our, youth I was going to, I, I didn't know if that's where you were going to go. Yeah. My across the street neighbor got an F-150 on his 16th birthday. Uh, and he was always out there why you know him and he, he was always out there washing it and polishing it up while I was, you know, trying to ignore my 10 year old maroon <laughs> Mazda. <laughs> inherit passed down Mazda in the driveway. Or my Toyota Tercel that didn't have a clock. Oh, yeah, I that was about that. Remember, you would drive into the high school parking lot, and not only would be, there be the gleaming new F one fifty that a couple of kids had gotten their parents to buy for them, but it would have the brush guards. Oh yeah. As I are you really are you really driving through brush <laughs> every day on your way to this school in the middle of Fort Worth? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Are you so rugged in your F-150? Oh, my God. Coming up on today's show, we answer your listener mail, including questions about Chris Cuomo and Dallas sports anchor Dale Hansen, plus Jeff Gwynn, author of the new book, War on the Border. All that and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here along with erica cervantes 
David, it's Friday, which means it's time for listener mail. And we need to begin with the two most depressing words in the English language. Oh, what are those? Chris Cuomo. (laughs) Oh, no. Big scoop in the Washington Post from Josh Dossie and Sarah Ellison. I will paraphrase. CNN's Chris Cuomo was on conference calls with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and his political apparatchiks because he was going to advise Andrew Cuomo about how to respond to sexual harassment allegations made by women who had worked with Andrew Cuomo. (laughs) On these conference calls, Chris Cuomo encouraged his brother to take a defiant position and not to resign, the people said. At one point, Chris Cuomo used the phrase, cancel culture, as a reason to hold firm in the face of the allegations. CNN has called the calls inappropriate, though Chris Cuomo will not be disciplined. First, right off the bat, I can't tell which is more just odd slash depressing, whether it's that Chris Cuomo or that Andrew Cuomo is the sort of person who insists on bringing his family on to work Zoom calls or conference calls or that Andrew Cuomo only knows how to talk to his family via work calls. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not (laughs) like in what world, in what world does it not just make more sense to have the meeting and then call your brother and tell him what happened in the meeting and see if he has any input, right? That you're the, it's just, I mean, I know what world it's the world of like highly powerful, functionally ineffectual men. I mean, I've worked for people like this who just, bring everybody into a meeting as soon as they, you know, flit across their brain. Um, but it's just the setup for the whole thing. Yeah, it's inappropriate, but it's just weird. It's just weird. It's not like Chris Cuomo is, you know, your cousin who runs a PR agency or something. You know, I mean, it's just like he's just your brother who happens to be in media. It's just it's 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 a it's a weird decision making tree. And then, of course, the other half of that is, and and maybe the reason we're talking about that, this is weird that Chris Cuomo would just be like, yeah, I'll hop on that call with many other people who can who can testify to that if the New York Times ever calls. I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably so much, so ingrained to both of them that it would have never, that it never even crossed their mind to be problematic because, you know, they're Cuomo's first and whatever the job description says second, but It's just weird. In the nine versions of this conversation we've had about stuff like this, I keep coming back to the same point, which is that oftentimes it's not that a journalist is caught in an ethical transgression. It's that the journalist, in this case, Chris Cuomo, is loudly announcing that they don't want to be a journalist anymore Mm -hmm. by doing just what you said, hopping on this call with tons of other people who can leak. This is ba- when when you're in a in a in a room with a bunch of political advisors or on a call in this case, it's basically going to be public at some point. Yeah. He's telling us he doesn't want to be a journalist anymore. Well, he told us that. He told everybody that a year ago or whenever that was. You remember that? I, mean, I don't know where yes. this falls. I assume this this is after that in the timeline. My my memory's a little bit hazy, but he said he didn't he wasn't enjoying his job anymore or whatever and then he ended up signing a big new contract. I mean, maybe that's the defense. Like, hey, guys, I told you. I told <laughs> I told you I didn't want this job, but you insisted on paying me. You joke, but I think a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, it's that the bosses don't listen when the person says that. Yeah. I thought the same thing uh, about David Brooks at the New York Times when he was doing that Weavers thing with Facebook. 
he was announcing he didn't want to be a journalist anymore. Mm -hmm. Chris Cuomo was telling us, hey, look, I, I, you know, I have my job as a journalist and I have my family and I have decided my family is more important. Yeah. And CNN just isn't listening to him <laughs> say that. They're like, no, no, you're still a journalist. And he's like, no, I'm not. If I started, if, if I just started like neglecting my ringer duties because I was like, you know, on tour with my country music band, I think that the, gen <laughs> I don't, I don't actually have one for the record. I'm, my guess is that the, you know, the ringer bill or genre would call me and probably start from the point of view, like, Hey, I'm proud of you for this band thing. It seems like that's what you want to do. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that the opener? You're not turning in any art assignments. You're not showing up for your <laughs> podcast. You are playing music gigs and sleeping all day. Yeah, I don't. The, the answer is not like have HR give you a talking to. <laughs> and the answer is listen to you when you say you want to do something else. It's really puzzling because I feel this happens all the time that it's not again. It's not that somebody's caught red handed so much as they're announcing they're announcing it to the world. I don't yeah. want to be a journalist anymore. I'm tired of being tied down to these moral and ethical rules that the profession is governed by. I don't want to do it anymore. And the boss mm -hmm. says, no, yeah, you do. Actually, you do. And they, no, no, I don't. And they, and they kind of make you still be a journalist. It's very, very weird. I do want to point out one thing about the CNN statement about Chris Cuomo. CNN said this, it was inappropriate to engage in conversations that included members of the governor's staff which Chris acknowledges he will not participate in such conversations going forward. Now that brings up an interesting question, which is, is the transgression here that Cuomo was on a call with other political advisors. And if he had just picked up the phone, as you say, and called his brother after the conference call and offered the exact same advice about standing firm and cancel culture and all that stuff, would that have been okay? Uh, honestly, I feel like morally that would be okay. I mean, I don't think there's any job where the line is drawn, like don't talk to your family and don't, you know, give advice to their family. Although if there's an exception, it might, it would, it might be this one. I mean, you know, it's, it's but that's it's, weird, right? It's weird to say that I can be a political advisor to my brother in private. I just can't be a political advisor to my brother when there are four or five people on the line. Yeah. But I think we make exceptions for this all the time in life. Right. I mean, if you're on like a, you know, if you're on a jury and you're not supposed to tell anybody what happens and then you go home and tell your wife about it, you're not going to get put in jail. You know, I mean, it's it's it, they're, they're, these are just sort of like unspoken assumptions in life. We talk to our families, but I agree with you and from a practical point of view or from an, you know, not from a above practical point of view. Uh, it's it's it looks it looks bad and it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think actually if if I'm drawing where the line should be here on what went wrong. It, we have to go back a few months when Chris Cuomo went on the air and said, hey, I cannot talk about my brother's, these allegations yes. against my brother because I am hopelessly compromised on this. And then secretly was advising his brother what to do on this. Right. Yeah, no, no. And I think that there is a distinction. I don't know how to legislate it between, you know, being a shoulder for your brother to lean on and like act and like specifically mapping out his. PR strategy, right? I mean, there's it, it, somewhere in between there, there is some sort of not so bright line, but you're right. He, he excused himself from talking about it on the air, which cuts both ways, right? I mean, it, it, I'm sure on some level he would have liked to, and people would have liked to hear him talk about it, knowing that he's thoroughly compromised, but 
he he sidestepped it and then and then yeah it, that that would have been the point in time to say obviously i, I talked to him about these things <laughs> you know i mean like obviously there it's not just the moral conundrum does not arise from the fact that we come from the same mother it comes from the fact that like we talk all the time and advise each other in life you know i mean that's a that that's i think that would be a fairly a fairly normal admission i do i guess it's worth I was I was on Twitter today and I saw Eric Wimple was tweeting about this and he 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 in in one tweet listed the Chris Cuomo situation that we're talking about alongside John Meacham writing speeches for Biden and not disclosing that when he discussed the speeches and also um Hannity and Tucker advising Trump uh behind the scenes and then and then subsequently I think uh, subsequently, he tacked on that Hannity paid for Gingrich to fly on his jet to interview for the BP jo- VP job and a couple other things that were, you know, very specific and kind of over the line, despite, you know, labeling himself something other than a news a newsman. Um, but the Meacham thing is, I guess, kind of instructive because we discussed this at the time. This is being a talking head on MSNBC is certainly a less whatever, morally restrictive role than what whatever Chris, Chris Cuomo has. But the most shocking, the most galling thing about the Meacham situation is that he didn't just say, well, I helped write this speech. Like, no, it wouldn't have affected his reality, the, the, or, or I've been advising the campaign. It wouldn't have materially affected his role as a commentator at all to say that. It might actually make him more compelling in a certain way or give him a different sort of set of insights. Um, I mean, we can set aside the Hannity thing and people can kind of rate their uh, rate, which one they think is worse. Wimple actually puts him in that order that, that I think, I think this is, Oh no, no. He says Cuomo and Meacham are both bad. And then the Hannity thing is worse because he was like, you know, advising Trump and Manafort and people like that, you know, off the, off the, off the record. Um, So you can kind of, I guess, take that. You, you, I guess you could make your own decision on that, but it's, um, it does just sort of come down to you could have said the thing when you said the other thing, right? You could have just said this thing out loud and, you know, journalistic ethics aside, I don't think we'd be complaining about it right now. It comes down to leveling with your audience. Yeah. Like if you saying, telling your audience, I'm taking a pass on this is different than saying I'm taking a pass on this and also advising my brother about what to do politically about this. You're just not leveling with your audience. And that that to me is a much that that's again, if we're trying to draw lines, that's a much bigger deal than, oh, somebody at the Columbia Journalism School said it was a bad thing. <laughs> You're just not telling your audience the truth. Mm-hmm. You're just not. Uh CNN says uh Cuomo won't be punished, as I mentioned earlier, to which the New York Times' James Ponawazic tweets, the phone calls were punishment enough, I guess. That's a good line. Uh Nick Field, <laughs> David asks us, what does this say about the legacy of Jeff Zucker? I've kind of got a semi counterintuitive take on this. So there's the Jeff Zucker built up Donald Trump into being this great businessman and yeah. TV star thing, despite all the political junk Donald Trump was spewing in the universe. We can just put that aside if that's even possible for a second. Talk about Jeff Zucker, CNN. Okay. Debit side, Chris Cuomo. There is quite a bit of positive Jeff Zucker, CNN, is there not? Jake Tapper. There, there- there are a lot of good things about about Zucker's tenure at CNN. Yes, yeah, I think so. I mean, I just think if you look at CNN right now, it's cable news, right? We're absolutely grading on a curve. 
But I think you could find a a pretty good uh, a pretty good group saying, hmm, Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper, Brian Stelter. People seem to have kind of come around on Don Lemon, which is not something I would have predicted four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It as cable news goes, uh, does that seem does that seem like you know the worst? Again, it's totally different cable news than it was when we were kids. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't know that I don't know that this is gonna be really a the the demerit when we look at Jeff Zucker's record. I think if we you know, made tiers of the things that we and people that, you know, other people that pay attention to media broadly defined talk about that nobody else talks about. Just like the existence of Jeff Zucker would probably be in the very highest tier. <laughs> I'm not sure that his legacy matters a whole. I mean, the, it's like no, it matters I, to to I, media columnists. Yes, and that and that's about it. I mean, it's the. I mean, it's. It, I, we saw talk last night that he might be staying on after saying he's going to leave. He's going to leave because uh, his apparent buddy David Zaslav of Discovery might be taking over the whole operation. But um, yeah, I mean, when you have a job like Zucker's, you can love him or hate him and dissect what he all of his moves down to a microscopic point but like you said it's cable news you're kind of working around the margins you know that with everything that you do and i'm not sure regardless that it even matters i'm already regretting partially defending him so let's just say this cnn could be a lot worse it could yeah. be a lot worse uh we talked on the last show david about sports center anchor kenny main who is leaving espn after being asked to take a pay cut Clay Horning wrote a column about Maine in the Norman Transcript newspaper in Oklahoma, quoted some of the things we said on the show very nicely about Kenny Maine, and by the way, actually mentioned the name The Press Box, unlike The New Yorker. So score one for the Norman Transcript. And I had I just had one additional thought about Kenny Maine that I wanted to share here, which is it is amazing to me, not only that he was hired and given such a prominent job at ESPN. But just like cable news, you got to go back 25 years and think, oh, wait a second. Kenny Maine became a star in the course of delivering highlights. Mm -hmm. He did not have the Stephen A. Smith job where it's like, okay, here are five minutes. Max Kellerman is going to be quiet and look into the camera and you just get to be Stephen A. for five minutes. He was doing a news show, a highlight show. And yeah. yeah, they could do those longish 30 second intros, which nobody would tolerate now, but you were expected to become a personality in the course of narrating like slam dunks and goals in hockey and stuff like that. That's just a completely different trick. And I don't think, I don't know if I, you know, even I appreciate no. how different that is than the universe everybody's in today. This is a chicken and the egg thing. So don't take this as me contradicting you but uh let's not forget those commercials a huge part of establishing any of those guys as a personalities absolutely i think just the the fact that his voice it wasn't you know so many, how many times have you heard of especially when you we were younger you hear the you hear the sportscaster voice and then see a face that doesn't match it you know or something but like kenny main was like it was a complete character you know i mean it was a full it was a it was it was a full-bodied like everything about it was was just Kenny Maine, and and that's part of what made him so special. In important media news, David, can I direct you to the new issue of People magazine? Please. Which has the cast of Friends on the cover. <laughs> okay. 
You may have heard on every account on Twitter that there is a Friends reunion show coming to HBO Max later this month. Something caught my eye about this. I don't know if I've, I think I've mentioned this on the pod before. I can't get off the people mailing list. <laughs> I, really, I really try. I have. They just keep I, sending it to you. I just, well, no, I, not even the, not even the hard issue. Just the, just the emails. Oh, okay. okay. I have unsubscribed six ways to Sunday spam. I just, I can't get off. I just get people magazine alerts constantly. <laughs> and I only make fun of it on Twitter, but they just keep sending it to me. Anyway. I clicked through and I read the article about the Friends reunion, and I Great. was struck by one quote from Matt LeBlanc, which has got to be the obligatory TV reunion quote. Every time people get back together to relive memories, someone must say this. Here is the quote. It's funny. When we do get together, it's like no time has passed. We pick up right where we left off. <laughs> yes. Like someday if you and I have some giant fight and the press box is canceled and then 20 years later we get back together to to do the show and reminisce about old overworked Twitter jokes, one of us is going to have to say that. Yeah. That's just the rules. Someone's going to have to say like, yeah, David and I sit down, turn on the mics and it was just like, just like we never left. It's just like riding a bike. Yeah. It was so natural when we got back together. I know this... Maybe as an we can shoehorn this into a media discussion. Am I is it am I dense or are these reunions? And I guess you, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air had one. Whatever are they deliberately blurring whether or not this is a new episode or just the cast sitting around and high fiving each other for an hour? Because <laughs> when I heard they were having a friends reunion, I was expecting that to mean. A six-episode miniseries of where where have these characters gone, and 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 judging by the trailer, it's them sitting in the old apartment and and doing trivia about the show they were all in, mm -hmm. which is fine. We have they some re of, reboot creep. Yeah, everything. I, I just assume things are reboots now. You're yes. right. Maybe it is just reboot creep. Maybe it's, I mean, and also I guess I guess I just would. I guess I'm just sort of shocked with the. I mean, Friends is a, is a was a huge deal. Don't get me wrong, and probably a bigger deal even than when we were watching it every Thursday night. But it does seem like there's a whole lot of media attending. You know, a People magazine cover. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of fanfare attending a the sort of thing that used to happen on like a Wednesday episode of Oprah. Well, I think I think actors and these networks realized, oh wait, we can bring back a 25 year old TV show. We can reboot it and have new episodes. Mm -hmm. And it'll be this huge thing and we'll all get lots of money, see Full House and all the other shows that have done this. And then I think there was a secondary realization of, oh, wait, we can bring back the TV show. But we don't even have to bring it back. Yeah. We can just like basically do a podcast. <laughs> I was about to say, it's kind of like the old, it's kind of like the, 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 the never ending argument about how, you know, the prestige podcasts take lots of money and lots of staff and lots of really brilliant people working on them. It's like, or you can just have two dudes jabbering at each other for an hour and the results <laughs> <laughs> the listening the listener results are basically the same you and i have squeezed the lemons of old sitcoms for all they're worth sure not really not professionally just like <laughs> us sitting around talking in an apartment when mark when, when, it, when mark cooper of hanging with mr cooper appeared on twitter earlier this week we were we i think we both rushed to our phones to text each other i mean oh it was, my god it was old, like a klaxon going off it was yeah. unbelievable unbelievable 
but even I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> I'm all good with this. You know, I'm, I, I've, we've squeezed every drop. I'm still just fascinated. I don't, I don't mean to return this, but I'm totally fascinated by how Matt LeBlanc knows how to say that. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like when there's a baseball player, young baseball player, I don't know, like Mike Trout, I assume he's hearing the other baseball players in the locker room say the cliches. So he knows, okay, you know, that, that, that wily old veteran over there said, Hey, we're just gonna, you know, pick up our bats and try to win the tomorrow. So, okay. That's what I'm going to say. Did Matt LeBlanc learn this from like Elliot Gould when he was on friends? <laughs> no, I don't know. I think it's, I think that maybe it's one of these things that's sort of born into us as, as you know, human beings. It's like, if you ask me how my visit with my mom went, I'm probably going to like say one of five things that is just sort of like, you know, I just push a button and it comes out. Right. And these are, <laughs> there's certain things that we're just sort of like trained to respond to, you know, questions with. Also looking at this people cover with the friends, it feels like we're right at the end of the cultural era where you assemble everyone for a print magazine cover like this. <laughs> you and I have been looking at these all our lives. Not, not so much a reunion, but like a first look you know, on EW. Yeah. Or I guess the British one is Empire. And if you have a really, really good one, maybe you got Vanity Fair. Exactly, yeah. In the old days, that was kind of like the high high watermark. I just feel we're at the end of this moment. Yeah, I think so too. Well, for one thing, you know, back when those like Vanity Fair, Young Hollywood issues or whatever would come out, you you would, there would always be like minor kerfluffles about whether or not all those people were there or whether they were Photoshopped together or even before Photoshop, just, you know, however cut and pasted together it was. Um, now you look at this people magazine cover and you're just like, like, it seems impractical that they got all five of the, all six of these people together. Right. I mean, yes. they were together to do the show, but it's just, you assume the opposite and you're right. I mean, you don't really need a magazine assembling a crew. You don't need, you know, assembling this crew when you can just Google and, you know, all you need is Google to find out what Matt LeBlanc, Matt LeBlanc this year looks like, or, you know, best actors in Hollywood. It, you know, it, it, it's it's all sort of there at the fingertips. But you're right. It is a sort of cultural institution. And it it has a certain look to it. There's a very specific, as an art director, I should know what this is, but a very specific, like, like photograph style. Yes. That is just the sort of, like, Annie Leibovitz doing Star Wars sort of style. Like, it's sort of, like, yes, clear, but... It clear matte clear but a little bit matte and 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 you know important looking um it's it's if it goes if it if it goes away i guess i'll miss it and if you have multiple actors one actor must be leaning on another actor <laughs> like here jennifer aniston is leaning on matt leblanc yes. i feel like i've been looking at group magazine covers with somebody leaning on somebody else for my entire life <laughs> by the way let's not forget the lower tiers of the first look reunion magazine cover. If you didn't get the biggies, you got like TV guide. Remember that was like nine different covers of uh, star Trek, deep space nine. Yes. And then if you really, really slumming, it was parade. Those, <laughs> those, those were the levels story in Politico, David, about Matthew McConaughey running for governor of Texas, maybe running for governor of Texas. Cause he's not in yet. Once in a while on this podcast, we do this thing where we just call a halt to something that is happening in the media. We've we we've heard it. We we're we're all done with it. I would like to call a halt to something because the lead of this political article goes like this. All right, all right, all right. He might, he might, he might. Oh. Yes. There you go. That uh is exactly what I felt. Folks, 
we're all good with the all right, all right, all right jokes about Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. The drawbridge has been raised. <laughs> that Politico article get, got got over the got over the moat, but that's it. Yeah, we'll only be accepting time as a flat circle jokes for the next three months, <laughs> and then we're going to move on to something inappropriate from one of his earlier films. The best one I feel was the first one we got months and months ago that said, "Are Matthew McConaughey's politics going to be alt right, alt right, alt right?" Yeah, that was so good. Yeah, and then and the, the, and the, the, and the one about his memoir that I'll write, I'll write, I'll write. Yeah, that, I mean, those, those that was it. That's the end. It's it. It's all over. So this is this is the official note for all of journalism. And if you see one, please contact us and we will contact the author directly. Mm -hmm. uh, let's do some actual mail from Gabe Hernandez. Thoughts on the NBA play-in games? I think they got marketed with the same stakes as an NBA playoff game, but never really had that big game feeling. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of, there, there's, I, have, I have so many thoughts about this. To me, the most telling moment was, I was and I might have misheard this, but on Inside the NBA either last night or the night before they were discussing who merited i think i think they were discussing whether or not Steph Curry merited an mvp com, you know mvp conversation and Kenny Smith said he might not even make the playoffs and so and and so i'm left there trying to figure out whether or not to play in game I, it's a play in game so i guess they're not they're playing their way into the playoffs but it is also sort of the playoffs right i mean it's like we're <laughs> uh <laughs> you 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 you've achieved the level that lets you play this special game i mean that you are playing off to with a chance to win the the, the nba championship so to to sort of dr dr to continue that phrase to, to raise the drawbridge between those two things is just sort of mind boggling this is my. This is where I come down. I think it's fantastic, and the game quality. I mean, if for the Lakers Warriors game alone, that's all you. Like it, it's it's all been worth it. Um, but it. I mean, I, I think it's fun as a fan, and I think that it's. But in so much as it's supposed to, kind of raise the stakes and bring in bring back the sort of you know it, get it, peak people's interest for the playoffs and 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 reel in some maybe, um, you know halfway fans or whatever. The urgency of the game is what's is is really what the marketing is, right? I mean, the fact that it's it's not it's not exactly player go home, but it's sort of player go home. The problem with that is that I've had several discussions over the past week trying to explain what's happening to my family, and none <laughs> of them understand what I'm talking about. I'm not sure that I understand it well enough to even talk about it, but. They're like, oh, so if they so if they lose this and LeBron doesn't get to be in the playoffs, like, well, not exactly. He'll get another chance, you know. I mean, it, it's I don't think they could have built it any better. It's a brilliant construction, but I think that the complexity of it makes it like it's like that. What, what, yeah, I mean, it makes it just a little bit too. It makes it feel a little bit different. It feels like a little bit of. It doesn't feel like real playoffs. Playoffs are just. It's either. Sweet 16, I mean, it's either NCAA tournament style or it's the, you know, the the seven game, five game series style. It's sort of like beyond logic. It's just so, so simple. And this is just so complicated. I thought the NBA's use of the phrase win or go home was particularly funny mm -hmm. because one, yes, this is postseason sports. So win or go home is not exactly right. a weird concept that happens all the time every year. Number two, as you point out, this whole round was built on the idea of not win, but not exactly go home. Mm -hmm. Finish ninth or 10th in your conference and eh, you get to keep playing more games. Lose that first 
you know, play-in game and still get to play another play-in game. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually win or go home so much as we're delaying win or go home by a few days. (laughs) Very weird. Uh, This is from Augie Hayes, legendary Dallas sportscaster Dale Hansen announced he is retiring in September. Uh, Dale Hansen, who was a huge star in Dallas when Dave and I were growing up, came to national prominence uh, a few years back when he started doing these very progressive monologues on the 10 o'clock news there in Dallas, Mm -hmm. one of which got him booked on Ellen. Uh, Augie Hayes wants to know who is the heir to the Dale Hansen rant throne. Is there an heir to this? First of all, farewell, Dale Hansen. Can we get Dale Hansen on the show? Absolutely. Our friend, our friend Jason Gay was suggested it, and it was it seemed so obvious. It's crazy. Dale Hansen is a legend. He should just be our permanent. He should be a permanent third co-host. I mean, he doesn't. He's just free now, right? He can do. <laughs> um, Dale Hansen's amazing. I don't know. There's not going to be a, someone else inheriting the Dale Hansen rant throne. At least nobody liked Dale Hansen, right? I mean, it's he. He was in a very specific place where he could where he garnered so much respect and comfort with the audience by being on the evening news. Can we define that place just a little bit? Because I don't know that people quite know it. The place is that you were part of the anchorman generation of local news. Mm -hmm. So you, you gain this just huge amount of local cred that you could not gain in the same way. Now, Mm -hmm. like somebody's going to have Dale Hansen's job at channel eight there in Dallas, but they're not going to have Dale Hansen's job. Yeah. I always say that about newspaper columnists. Somebody's going to be a sports columnist at the Boston Globe in 10 years, I think, but they're not going to have Bob Ryan's job. Right. Or Peter Gammon's job or Dan Shaughnessy's job. It's just not going to be the same job. So he had all this just like notoriety built up. And by the way, all this skill at writing and just like making love to the camera and everything. Nobody's better than that in local news than Dale Hansen. But then he also had the Texas thing. Yeah. The idea that there was this guy in Dallas delivering these monologues. And I'm pretty sure you and I grew up with Dale Hansen watching him do sports. Like when I first saw the aggregated Dallas sports anchor, Dale Hansen has a model, you know, you know, goes viral on Michael Sam. I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I was like, uh Oh, this yeah. is, is this like a bat? Like did something terrible happen? Mm-hmm. But the idea, I think for national people, like, Oh my gosh, there's this guy in Dallas, Texas who is in a red state, who is delivered. That was very, very powerful. And anyway, that just helped set him up on this trajectory. Totally, totally. I mean, the fact that it was counterintuitive, I think, was the real selling point for the na- in, uh, in a national level. But he, was, and he, but he was great at what he did. You know, sometimes it takes that surprise, that sort of, uh, you know, to, to kind of cut through your preconceptions and, and get you to listen. Um, but yeah, I mean, the generation... He, there, there was, yeah, there's so much about the generation. You're right. I mean, it's like now we always talk about, oh, the, you know, the glory days when like every American trusted Walter Cronkite or, you know, whatever, you know, you just, you watch your, the national mm-hmm. news and everyone, everyone kind of believes that as like a universal truth. But for the longest time, that really was your, you know, for, for a lot, in a lot of markets, that was your, your the local newscasters. And, um, you know, in Texas in particular, when you have, all the ways that he's been tied into the Dallas Cowboys and feuded with the Dallas Cowboys and whatever. I mean, he's like, you feel like you know him on a personal level. And that's, that's, that is also an oddity for his generation of trusted news sources, right? That there was, there was a personal side to the whole thing. 
And just to be so tied in, like I said, like we both said, to football and to, to sports makes him even more sort of part of the family than just your average newscaster. Um, but he's, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Given all that, it's hard to imagine anybody sort of taking up, the occupying the same space um, in our media ecosystem. But if you want to, I mean, given that it's not going to be a regional sportscaster claiming the throne what what are the what are the criteria brian for for that for who who the next dale hansen will be well i feel it's it's almost too easy to be the next dale hansen like anybody can look into their phone and cut a promo right about progressive politics or social issues or whatever you want to do it's just it's it's almost now the the zone is too flooded mm-hmm. and like i said it was the fact that it was a local tv personality doing it that was the magic of it yeah like you and I could have that and like we would get three tweets. I mean, that would be, I'd be like, oh, good job, David. Yeah. You know, you're really telling it like it is, but nobody would care. It's yeah. it's that it was somebody from a particular time and particular media time, a particular media place, a particular actual place. That's what was the magic of Dale Hansen. One more from Gersher, David. When is the last time you all saw each other in person? Do you guys have any plans to get together for the summer family trip, <laughs> guys trip, work trip? I um, I was just texting with somebody um, the other day who wanted to have a drink. And I was just like, in, you know, a, wor- a work related thing. And I was just like, yeah, sure. And then he hit me back up like so this was probably two weeks ago or something. He hits me back up two weeks later and he's like, well, do you want to pick a day? And I was like, you know what? That sure might have been a little bit. <laughs> it might have been a, like my, my 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 eyes might be a little bit bigger than my stomach on this thing. I'm comfortable with the winding down of coronavirus, but I'm also like not commuting to work. I don't know when the I don't really know what the structure of my life is at this point. You know, like I don't I don't I honestly, if you ask me when a good time to take the evening off would be, I don't know. You know, it's all just it's it's all very hazy. Um, all that said, well, I'm sure we'll see each other soon. I mean, it's it, but it's will be um, when when people worked out of offices, you and I would be in each other's towns several times a year. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what the answer is, though. Yeah, I was planning on being on the East Coast this summer, so maybe we'd get some together. I've had this vision, actually. This is not a joke, but for like, I don't know, like a year that when you and I and Erica are all in the same place at the same time, which I guess will probably be in L.A. at some point. Mm-hmm. that we will take a photo together and put it on Twitter. Like, oh my gosh, the people that make this podcast are actually in the same place again. <laughs> now I feel it's going to be a little like the Friends reunion cover on people. <laughs> like David and I will both be competing to be the Matthew Perry. He looks different than I remember. Guy. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, uh, love, love the true. pod. Just, uh, is he, are we sure he's okay? All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. As mentioned, over the last three days, we have enjoyed the first ever NBA postseason play-in games. It was an extremely overworked Twitter joke to write. This is the most embarrassing play-in tournament performance I've ever seen. Thanks to Tyler Edwards, <laughs> Russell DeLeon, and Karshan. We had to know that was coming. That's just like the uh, the absolute right down the middle overworked Twitter joke. Yes. Thank you guys for pointing that out to us. Uh, somewhat predictably, David, we learned this week that a number of Republican U.S. senators 
are opposed to establishing a commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Right. It was an overworked Twitter joke to insist that the insurrectionists weren't chanting, hang Mike Pence. No, no, they were friendly. They were chanting, come hang Mike Pence. Come hang. <laughs> just see, that were just tourists. <laughs> Want to get a picture with a veep. And finally, David, a tweet from Florida State Representative Anthony Sabatini about cancel culture. Uh. We, we really do need the foghorn sound effect every time that term is mentioned on this podcast. I think I think we had it for a while. We're, we're bringing it back. Anthony Sabatini of Florida tweets, if Socrates, if Socrates was out philosophizing in American society today, oh, he would no. be canceled real quick. <laughs> It was an overworked Twitter joke to point out that, in fact, actual Socrates was executed by being forced to drink hemlock. <laughs> Why was he executed, Wikipedia? For, quote, corrupting the youth of Athens and introducing strange gods. Yeah. Socrates was canceled. I, I don't know. <laughs> he was canceled in a way that is different from losing your tenured job at the university. I just don't know how to put this. Thanks to Paul Middlecoff. If you think drinking hemlock is the ultimate form of cancellation, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. All right, David, in the notebook dump, kind of a personal interview this week. When I was a young would-be journalist in Fort Worth, like elementary school age, I didn't have any relatives in the business, but I was really lucky because one of my Cub Scout leaders was Jeff Gwynn, who was then a writer with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Mm -hmm. And I have this memory, and I might have been wearing a Cub Scout uniform at the time, of wanting to be a sports writer. I had said that out loud, I think, in second grade, never wanted to be anything else. And my mom shoving me forward to Jeff Gwynn and saying, Brian, tell him, tell him what you told me. Tell, tell, tell him what you want to be when you grow up. And me, you know, being a little kid going, I want to be a sports writer. Jeff Gwynn was the best mentor I could have possibly ever asked for. The first thing he did was get me a byline in the Fort Worth Star Telegram's kids section. <laughs> How's that for memories of 90s newspapers? Uh, he encouraged me, he challenged me, he made me believe that I could actually do this for a living. Uh, he was just fantastic and continues to do that to this day. He has left the Fort Worth Star Telegram and has become a huge author, writing books about Charles Manson, Jim Jones, mm -hmm. the OK Corral. The new one is called War on the Border via Pershing, the Texas Rangers and an American Invasion. We mostly stuck to the book but talked a little bit about Jeff's career at the end. Here is Jeff Gwynn. All right, Jeff, the revolutionary Pancho Villa is one of the main figures in War on the Border. Can you remind us first who Pancho Villa was? Pancho Villa 
for a few years was one of the most prominent entities in the entire North and Central American continent. He was a revolutionary who first tried to throw uh, the federal president out of office, succeeded, got crossways with the other revolutionaries, thought America was his dear friend, turned on America on a dime, and right up until 9-11, led the last very successful terrorist raid on American territory, which led in turn to a lot of other violence and problems that persist to this day. And while he was a revolutionary, Villa basically had his own PR apparatus, you write in the book. What did that entail? Well, you know, I once wrote a book about Charles Manson and wrote the reason we're talking about him all these years later is he knew how to sell himself to the public. Pancho Villa had a greater gift for self-promotion than any other historic figure I've ever written about. In Mexico, he would identify with the common people claiming he was one of them, even though he'd throw temper tantrums and slaughter whole villages. In America, he understood that the American public wanted to feel superior to Mexicans. He dressed appropriately. He wore a big sombrero, loose shirt, peasant pants, drooping mustache, uh, became a caricature for the Speedy Gonzalez cartoon character later on. Uh, In fact, he was very incisive. He was uh, an expert in battle. He played both sides against the other. And in doing that, he brought Mexico and America to the brink of war. It almost happened, and Pancho Villa is the reason why. All right, so you talk about war. How does Villa come to attack the village of Columbus, New Mexico, in March 1916? Well, America actually helped him out here, though they hadn't meant to a few years earlier. Uh, America, without permission from Mexico, came in and occupied the seaport of Veracruz in Mexico just a couple years earlier. Uh, It was a flimsy excuse that turned out not to be true the minute we were there, but we didn't want to back out and lose face. So we're a presence in Mexico, unwanted by the Mexican people, for 10 months before that group is pulled out. Villa is trying to overthrow Venustiano Carranza, who's the Mexican president, and his administration is recognized by America as the official government of Mexico. V is trying to make a case to the Mexican people that Carranza is sold out to America. I'm the only leader you can trust. Look at me. I dress like you. I live like you. I talk like you. So his goal was to goad America into coming back into Mexico without the permission of the Mexican government. He had to do something to incite this. If that happened, Villa could then claim Carranza's letting the Americans come in again. I'm the only one who will fight them. Come to me instead as your leader. So he picked an isolated town across the border in America, led just over 500 troops in to attack, ransack the town, murder as many civilians as he could, steal army horses and mules from a little camp there, flee back into Mexico, but not so fast that the Americans wouldn't follow. Once he goaded American forces across the border in Mexico in 1916, he thought everything would then follow the way he wanted. It didn't, but it was a very cruel and and clever tactic, and it did work. Is it as outlandish an idea as it seems to, I'm going to provoke America, they're going to follow me into Mexico, 
They're going to follow me into Mexico, but not capture me because that would end the whole thing. And they're also going to stay long enough to turn the Mexican people against Carranza's government. It seem it seems kind of like a crazy idea. Well, you know, there's a lot of things in history that seem crazy from 1916 to the present day, aren't there? <laughs> yes. And and again, Villa had a great sense of timing. Demagogues do. And the whole idea, because Mexico has been so resentful of America anyway, all the way back to the U.S.-Mexican War, when we took a million eight square miles of Mexican territory away, Mexico used to own the land right up to Wyoming in Southwest America. So this resentment is generational. Think for a minute about Afghanistan today. When we send in forces and we're fighting enemies that seem almost prehistoric to us, but they their feuds last generations. And the, the antipathy there is, is never gonna change. So Villa knew what he was doing. He understood his country. He understood America couldn't tolerate this kind of insult. And, and so that's why it worked. It wasn't crazy at all then. It was, it was bold. But again, we, we've seen many examples in history where some bold action can trigger an almost unexpected result. So you mentioned the U.S.'s response. What did that entail with the punitive expedition? Well, it was screwed up from the beginning. Uh, John Pershing, who's the general put in charge of the punitive expedition, is put in an impossible position. Now, the American public expects him to go into Mexico, this backward country, nab this terrorist, this bandit, this uneducated peasant, haul him back to America for punishment, or at least destroy the Villistas, his army, so they, this would never happen again. At the same time, World War I is going on over in Europe. Woodrow Wilson and the Wilson administration are trying to keep us out of it. The American army is small. It's smaller than Belgium's national army at the time. Uh, most of the troops are raw. They have no real training. Uh, they don't have proper weaponry. The last thing that Woodrow Wilson wants is for America to get involved in a war with Mexico. Now that we couldn't win it, but it would take away so many of our military resources, we wouldn't have any opportunity to influence the war in Europe, let alone go in if it turns out we have to. So the administration orders Pershing to do this. Go down into Mexico, capture Villa, or at least destroy his following. But whatever you do, don't upset the Mexican government or the Mexican people. Make sure they know this isn't Veracruz. We're, we're not coming in to stay again. But the minute they get there, the Carranza administration doing exactly what we expected is saying, you've got to get out. He doesn't want to be seen to be the one letting the Americans in. And suddenly the Mexican army, the Mexican federal army is surrounding the expedition on three sides. We're very close to war here. It's just about to happen. And why doesn't war break out at that point? Is it just the looming specter of World War I and Wilson doesn't want to get involved there? Not really. Uh, you've got, at this point, uh, the National Guards called out in America, over 150,000 National Guardsmen down to the border. 
Pershing, surrounded on three sides in northern Mexico, was saying, let me go in and fight them. We can take the Mexican army. And he could. But when it comes right down to it, and Mexico even has an invasion plan for the United States, their armies are going to go into Texas and capture Laredo and San Antonio. They don't really believe they can hold them forever, but they think they can break through the National Guard troops and then have something to bargain with, with the American government. Let's call the whole thing off. Let's everything go back to normal, just pull the expedition out. But the reason that it really stops is that America, if we go to war with Mexico, can draft 10 to 12 million men of fighting age and bring them down to Mexico. The entire Mexican population at this time is about 15 million. And so Carranza realized Mexico is probably going to be overwhelmed. Doesn't mean he gives up on bloodying America's nose and maybe getting some territory back, but direct war isn't going to do it. Of course, the Zimmerman telegram comes in not many months later. You write that there was a young second lieutenant named George Patton on the punitive expedition. What did he do during that period? I have so much enjoyed writing about young shavetail Lieutenant George Patton. Now, you've got to forget Blood and Thunder Patton, George C. Scott from the, from the <laughs> film. What you've got here is a 30-year-old lieutenant trapped in an army system where you can't get promoted except by seniority, wants more than anything else to be famous. He's at Fort Bliss with Pershing, stationed in El Paso. And Pershing, when he's picking the troops to take with him, does not pick Pat. And oh my God, George is going to be left behind in El Paso. Everybody else is going to get the glory. He's got one thing working for him. Pershing is courting Patton's younger sister. <laughs> they are dating in El Paso. Now, Patton doesn't exactly say, sis, put the pressure on Pershing. Tell him there's no good night kiss unless I go. But uh, she helps make it clear to her boyfriend that the big brother really wants to be there. Pershing is sped up. He actually says to Patton's face, why should I take you ahead of anybody else? Patton says, because I want to go more than anybody else, which was probably true. Still, he's not picked. To get Patton off his back, Pershing calls him the crack of dawn one morning and says, look, how long would it take you to get ready if I said you could come? And Patton said, oh, I'm already packed. I can come right now. <laughs> Pershing said, I'll be damned. I guess you get to come. And Patton winds up making some of the first strides in his career on the punitive expedition. He does something that really is a major feat in Army annals. During the expedition, as part of a patrol, he leads the first completely motorized attack in American military history. Three jeeps going into a desert isolated rancho after some Viista leaders. And Patton, who clearly loves this opportunity, manages to dispatch a couple of the dastards with his ivory-handled pistol and to take the bodies back to the American camp for identification, straps them on the hoods of the jeeps, the way you display deer after a successful hunting trip makes a point of driving back to the American camp through villages of Mexicans who've been hostile to the expedition 
and in front of the newspaper reporters afterwards who are embedded, carves notches on, on his gun handle. It was a great moment for him, but it was also an important point in Army history. We're, we're switching over from cavalry to cars. And uh, this is the first time that it happened in the field. Given that it was compromised from the start, was the expedition seen as a success in the United States? It was mistakenly seen as a failure, Brian. Villa survived. He not only survived, but the expedition is finally being pulled out. He's recruited about a thousand more new followers, and they're attacking all over again in Mexico. So that didn't work. But what did happen was this. Pershing did something. He had amazing foresight and patience. He was sort of locked up in northern Mexico, couldn't go in any direction. He's frustrated. He really wants to fight his way out. But he's been ordered not to do that. So he realizes he's got 10,000 troops, most of them who still really aren't battle ready. And he uses the last five months in Mexico to actually train the troops to be able to fight. He puts them through maneuvers, artillery practice, everything. To the point where four months after the expedition's withdrawn, the United States enters World War I. Germany has estimated that even if America did that, it would take at least one year, probably 18 months, for the American military to advance to a point that actually be any kind of formidable foe. Instead, Pershing, commanding the American troops, right away has a nucleus of trained fighters. World War I swung on Americans' entrance into the war. And the reason we could give such momentum so quickly is because of Pershing and the way he trained his troops on the punitive expedition. You mentioned Villa's recruiting. Did he think his gambit was a success? Okay, I've lured American forces onto Mexican soil. They have chased me around for months and months and months. Did he think he'd made out like he wanted to in the whole deal? Well, the problem for Villa is uh, even as he was fleeing from the punitive expedition, trying to not to get too far ahead, he also tangled with some federal troops, and many of these recruits had been forced into service with him, told, you know, you're gonna, we'll kill you and your families if, if you don't come along. And a couple of his forces, uh, who had been recruited that way, shot him from behind and pretty much destroyed his left leg. So for much of the punitive expedition time in Mexico, Villa isn't fleeing gallantly from them as he thought. He's badly wounded. He's hiding out in caves and little villages trying to heal up. Just as they're about to leave, he finally heals. He did not personally, while the expedition was there, get to lead valiant battles against them. He missed that. But he did get the Yankees back into Mexico. He had worked up the the wrath of the civilian population, especially the poor people. And for a a time after the punitive expedition left, Villa is again a military force. Ultimately, he's beaten back by, by the Mexican Federal Army and fails again. But he got what he wanted. He got America into Mexico. He got the people furious and turning to him as as their rescuer. So He didn't fail. He didn't win, but he didn't fail. Jeff, as you studied the way Americans and American politicians thought about the border 100 years ago and think about the border now, what parallels jumped out at you? 
Well, I can't say what parallels jumped out. Every parallel jumps out, Brian. <laughs> Uh, it, in the book, one of the things I turned up that shocked me was the first plan to fence our border and keep out unwanted Mexicans was in 1903. By 1912, it's been announced that the American government is going to build a 1,200-mile fence, a barrier, from the Pacific to the Rio Grande. And some of these barriers actually start to be put in place. 1915, 1916, again, it never works. People who really want to can go over, under, around. A lot of the border can't be walled off because the walls would collapse if you tried to put them up. Uh, that's happening right now. At the same time, because of the civil wars in Mexico, you have thousands of refugees trying to flood into America where they're going to be safe, get away from the violence. When these folks come, they're starving. Many of them are sick. You've got old people. You've got infants, uh, people who can't care for themselves and need not only immediate medical care if they get into America, but are going to need to be taken care of forever afterward. And there's resentment on the American side. We can't take all these people, plus the suspicion that maybe they're sending their bad ones over. Maybe they're trying to put their bad people in place. Everything we hear today is the same. 1913, 1914, there are terrible, horrible, isolated camps for some of these refugees where other, you know, outsiders say, but how can we do this? It's inhuman. And the government's saying, but we can't take care of them all. We've never, as a government, tried to work directly with the Mexican government to figure out a proper immigration policy. One bit I didn't know anything about was the so-called Plan de San Diego. Can you explain a little bit what that was? Well, we also have to remember this isn't just one-sided. Uh, Americans can, can uh, actually, uh, there was a lot of, of horrific action towards Mexicans, both on our side of the border and on the other side. But the Plan de San Diego, which I had never heard of until I started this book, was a long-range plan funded in part by the Mexican government and in part by the Germans for raids to take place across the border in the United States by Mexican rustlers and criminals, anything to try to make America desperate for some kind of peace on the border. The Carranza government then was going to say, we'll step in and make the border safe. In return, you have to do things for us. And there were about 50 raids over a course of a couple of years. And uh, Anglos on the border, about 15 were killed, 27 were wounded. It, and it's a, it's a terrible thing. It should never have happened. It's also true at the same time, the Texas Rangers were committing genocide on Tejanos and innocent Mexicans on the border. And the death rate there, the death toll is calculated anywhere from 375 to 5,000. So both sides are doing this to each other. It's terrible. And the resentments of that day are still with us now. And Americans using the specter of the Plan de San Diego as a as a essentially license to do whatever they want to do to including to, as you say, American citizens. Well, you know, even today we hear about these hordes of, of dangerous immigrants who are coming up to approach the border anytime and they're going to come over and they're just going to flood in here and just cause havoc. 
And that was the same way that the Texas Rangers were reacting to the Plan de San Diego, which was a terrible thing, but it was a few isolated rays. Yet the public, American public, was sold as this is a full-scale invasion of evil Mexicans. There's very little new under the sun, Brian. A few questions about your career, Jeff, before we go. When we first met, you were working at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram as a writer, later a columnist, and an editor. When did you start thinking you would want to go from daily journalism to book writing? Well, about the same day I started daily journalism, I, <laughs> I, I, I think most people who were in journalism then or who are in communications now uh, think about, yes, I'd like to write books someday and make that the only thing I ever did. Uh, and I tried. And uh, I had actually published eight books while I was at the paper, and they sold in the collective dozens. Uh, even though I had some really sharp young people helping me with some of the research over wow. the course of time. Uh, and then uh, I, I got lucky with a novel uh, that ended up selling a half million copies and let me give up my day job. I mean, the dream came true. I was very lucky. And ever since, this is what I do. Years ago, I remember you telling me this, and, and apologies if I mangle it. You told me something like, out of every 100 people that want to write a book, one will actually get started on that book. And out of every 100 that start writing a book, one of those books will actually get published. So how did you make sure your books went from, became a real thing rather than just a notion? Well, the same thing I tell everybody who says to me, I want to be a full-time writer. You can't give up. I wrote three books before I was ever able to sell one. I had eight more published before I actually made a royalty check. But you keep trying. Ultimately, you can expect that you're going to be one of the very few lucky ones who can just go ahead and be a full-time writer. But that doesn't, doesn't mean you shouldn't try. The only way it can happen is you stop trying. So anyone who's watching this and has the dream, look, it can happen. I think of myself as a as an inspiration to mediocre writers everywhere. <laughs> you have published books about Charles Manson. You mentioned that Jim Jones, the shootout at the OK Corral. Is there a through line for what interests you? I always like writing about different periods in, the mix in American history and trying to see how it interrelates to what's happening to us today. You know, there's no vacuum in history. Everything's related. So I look for eras in America's history from the settling of the West on. Subjects I don't think I know enough about, but want to know more. And then I spend two years researching and another year writing. So it, it'll never end, but it's always fascinating for me. Do you have a particular kind of reader in mind when you sit down to write a book like War on the Border? People who are curious. People who want to look beyond the mythology. Every one of my books, even the novels, is about the difference between mythology and the truth. I don't I don't believe in alternative facts. I believe in giving readers the facts and letting them make up their own minds. Finally, Jeff, you wrote about Charles Manson in nonfiction form. So I wanted yeah. to ask you this. What did you make of Quentin Tarantino's fantasy treatment of the Manson family in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I thought it was great entertainment. <laughs> what, what comported with what you wrote? Spawn Ranch part of it? Anything line up? Uh, I thought Tarantino captured very well the sort of weird atmosphere in Los Angeles at that time. Though what caught it best, at least for me, the whole time I was working on the book and going to have to hang out with Leslie Van Houten and Pat Krenwinkel at Corona Women's Prison, fun things like that. I would listen to Neil Young's uh, album On the Beach, 
which has songs about L.A. at that time. If anybody wants to really get in the mood to think about Charlie Manson, play that album. You'll, you'll get the vibe. All right. Jeff Gwynn's new book is War on the Border via Pershing, the Texas Rangers and an American Invasion available right now. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the Press Box. Thank you, Brian. All right. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about a report from the Tennessee legislature was guns, germs, and deals. Today's headline comes from Balladwino, or maybe Balladwino. It's from the Sydney Morning Herald down there in Australia. Here's a setup. It's a story, David, about Oxford Street in Sydney. Oxford Street, which is apparently looking a little down at the heels, as they say. Mm -hmm. It needs a glow up. The subhead of the article is plan to bring city's faded boulevard back to life. So we're rescuing Oxford Street, which has hit hard times. What was the Sydney Morning Herald strain pun headline? Is it a shoe thing? Is it like polishing your Oxfords or resoling? No, not quite. Oxford, uh, Oxford, England, Oxford. Uh, Oxford shirt, like an Oxford, uh, like yeah, a, a, Oxford, um, Oxford University, Oxford. Um, Maybe think of a very prestigious press box award. The, if the you get Oxford on, comma. Oh, Oxford, Oxford. Um, street's not looking so great. Oxford, come on, Oxford. Uh, <laughs> drama, Oxford. Um, You're gonna have to wake up the street. Have to bring it back to life. Coma? Oxford Coma. Oh, that's really good. Oxford Coma. Good work, Sydney Morning Herald. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We should uh, clue in listeners on our slight scheduling change here at the Press Box. Mm -hmm. We do an episode on Monday, which comes out Monday afternoon or Monday evening, depending on when you listen. We are now recording the second episode of the week on Friday morning. So instead of Thursday night, you will get it early Friday and roll into the weekend with us. We got one question also, David, about UFO journalism. What do we make of this UFO journalism boomlet? Yeah. Do we have someone next week who can explain this to us? Yes. Yes. I, I'm so excited uh, that Gideon Lewis Krauss uh, is going to be on the show next Friday. Um, he just had an incredible piece in The New Yorker about the well, the phenomenon of UFOs and how the U.S. government started taking them seriously. It is, it's been, a, it is an incredible little boomlet. Um, and I think that New Yorker piece, if you haven't read it, is just, I mean, it's just a magnificent piece that really will allow us to get into all the little ins and outs of why people are talking about this now. Gideon Lewis Krauss, plus more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. And in two weeks, the Hanging with Mr. Cooper reunion show. <laughs> Don Lewis, Holly Robinson, Pete, come on out here. Uh, We'll see you then. It was like we never left. <laughs> it was so natural. We just picked right up back up where we left off. 